Good morning, church. How's everybody doing? Good. Good, good, good. <clears throat> we have uh, spent the last three weeks, three weeks, yeah, three weeks um, being inspired by uh, what we call ministry partners, right? People that we partner with that work with different organizations to uh, bring God's shalom to the world that we live in. Um, that's this series that we've been in, Seeking the Shalom. And you may be thinking to yourself, wait a minute, that's just Stephanie. She is not a ministry partner. I am not, you are correct. I work for a ministry called the South Kitsap School District. Uh, seeking the shalom of no one. The district, I'm just, I seek the shalom of those. Um, I'm just kidding. Um, but I am one who partners with you in the ministry that Kitsap House is doing. Um, and so the, the information sheet that uh, Kirsten so beautifully made up that talked about each of the ministry partners that were um, speaking on my section, it said Stephanie was born and raised in Port Orchard, Washington. She's a native Port Orchardite. That is a lie. And I seek your forgiveness for that lie. Um, I am mostly Port Orchard. I was actually born in San Diego. Uh, then shortly after I was born, we moved to England, <clears throat> where we lived for a few years, and then we came to Port Orchard from there. And then we were here for four years, and then we did California for another year. What does that sound like my dad might have done? He was. My dad was a doctor in the Navy, so we were kind of all over the place in the beginning, and then he retired from the military when I was 10. And he loved Washington so much that he came back and settled here. So I did four years uh, from the time I was five years old to the time I was nine, did another year in California, and then came back and have been here off and on ever since. Graduated from high school here, went to college in Edmonds, spent a couple years back in California, came back here. I always, I'm like the pinball, and Port Orchard is that area that's like between the paddles. I just keep, and finally I was like, I'm done. This is just where I live. This is where I am. So I am as native Port Orchard as, you know, you can be, I guess. Um, so when Megan first talked to uh, us, she, has a, she had a little team that got together where we talked about what is, what is this going to look like while she's out um, and what do we want to talk about. And this whole idea of seeking the shalom, she said, I, want, I would love it if you'd think about three things um, as you're asking the Lord what he has for the congregation through you. And it is, where do you see brokenness in the world around you? How does God address that brokenness? And how do we as Kitsap House get to be part of addressing that brokenness? And I was like, all right, well, okay, I can handle that. I can handle that brokenness. And what God really kept bringing to me was just the word beloved. Like beloved, beloved, beloved. And I was like, what, where are we in that? So I started opening my eyes to the world that I lived in, which the world I live in, I teach at one of the alternative schools in South Kitsap, one of the alternative high schools, and the world I live in is high school-aged youth. And high school-aged youth who found that they did not fit or belong felt like they didn't fit or belong at a traditional high school and they needed to do something different. And so for a lot of my students, that's academically they do something different. For a lot of my students, it's I do not fit in my own skin or in my own brain, and it's coming out in my studies, and I just need to be somewhere else. 
And so I see a lot of brokenness in my students and a lot of crisis of identity. And so how do we address that? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read to you from the Gospel of Mark. My identity was pretty firmly rooted in my family and who I was, my name, my parents. Every time I'd leave the house, my parents would say, remember your name, remember who you belong to, largely because Port Orchard is a small town and it would get back to them if I did anything wrong, but also because my identity came from my family. And so in Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 13, we find out where Jesus' identity came from. I want to read this to you real quick. One day Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee, and John baptized him in the Jordan River. As Jesus came up out of the water, he saw the heavens splitting apart and the Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, You are my dearly loved or beloved son, and you bring me great joy. The Spirit then compelled Jesus to go into the wilderness where he was tempted by Satan for 40 days. He was out among the wild animals, and the angels took care of him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Father, I feel like the word you gave me was beloved. And so I pray as we are looking together at the scriptures that you've given us, as we're looking at a certain account of the life of your son when he was here on earth, I pray that your message of beloved would be clearly communicated. Holy Spirit, be here and do your work among us. In Jesus' name, amen. So I say brokenness. Uh, what I saw in the brokenness of this community was identity. And let me tell you, I feel like uh, it, teens have always struggled with who they are. Am I right? I mean, some of you, you could probably cast your memory back. Some of you, it wasn't that long ago. Others of you, it may take a little longer to get back there. But remembering that as your, your life is changing, your schools are changing, your body is changing, you're just trying to figure out who you are, and there's a struggle of identity in that, which is natural, normal, it's just biology, how it happens, and yet it looks different now. It looks different from how it did when I was a teenager. I was able to, ha I had friends, I had people who weren't my friends at school saying things, pointing things out, making me feel maybe less than, but then I could go home to my place of safety, to my people, and forget about all of that, and shut it all out, and now you can't get away from it. How many of you have seen a younger person in the last... 48 hours, okay? How many of you saw that person without an electronic device in their hand? You can't get away from it, right? Charlie did, because we don't let our kid have a phone, so there's that, <laughs> but uh, you can't get away from it. It's everywhere. I have a student, there's a student who went to our school who struggled so much with their own identity and trying to figure out who they were. Student has been, had been at our school for four, years and every year identified by a different name. Every year. Lots of students are changing their names right now, right? This student every year never felt this one's not right, now it's this one. This one's not right, now it's this one. That's just one student. I've got probably three or four that I can name that the same thing has gone on. 
for them, an alternative school is a microcosm of, of lots of things, of lots of broken. We get to be, we're kind of like a little hospital <laughs> where there's a lot of broken that we need to address. And I will tell you that I believe teenagers are just a reflection of our larger society. And if you doubt that, let me point you to the one of the biggest blockbuster movies of the summer, the Barbie movie. If you know, you know. And the overarching message of that movie was about identity. What is arguably the best song on the soundtrack comes at the resolution of what's happening. No spoilers, don't worry. The resolution of what's happening and the lyrics of that song are, I used to know what I was made for. What am I made for? So I'm telling you that identity is a struggle for human beings. And if we're looking at scripture, which we will, <laughs> I would say it's been a struggle for human beings for millennia, trying to figure out who we are. So the brokenness is we don't know who we are. So how does God address that brokenness? To answer this question, we're going to take a, a few minutes and we're going to dive into the account of Jesus, actually not just his baptism, but Jesus in the wilderness. Um, what I read to you from Mark uh, was really very brief. That's kind of how Mark is. Mark's like, this happened, let's move to the next thing, then this happened, and then this happened. He's really fast. He really move, moves through in the Gospel of Mark. But this account of Jesus' baptism and his time in the wilderness is told in three of the four Gospels. It's Luke and Matthew as well. And so if we want some details, we got to jump over to one of those guys. So we're going to look at Matthew. Um, and so we started with Jesus' baptism. It's this very public transition from Jesus as just a private citizen doing his carpenter thing in his town to the launch of his public ministry. And at his baptism, this very public, very dramatic thing happens, right? He comes up out of the water. We're told the heavens open. Like, I think in the King James it says the heavens are rended open or ripped open. So this is, this is significant. This is a huge deal. The heavens are ripped open. And the Father's voice speaks publicly, declaring Jesus' identity. And in Mark, it's very personal. It says, you are my dearly loved son, and you bring me great joy. Matthew and Luke, uh, it says the voice said, this is my beloved son, with whom I'm well pleased. So, but Mark makes it really personal. Um, the Spirit is descending on Jesus, communicating that love, right? And then the Spirit does another thing, which we're going to get to um, very soon. But I want to pause for one second. If you, how many of you have, uh, have, you don't have to show me your hands, just think. If you've read the Gospels, have you ever thought about where, where did these stories come from? Like, where did we get these stories? Mostly eyewitnesses, right? Most of the, the authors of those books, Matthew and John, are both named as one of Jesus' 12 friends. Um, Luke and Mark are not, but, but Luke and Mark were disciples. Jesus had more than 12 disciples, right? He had a bunch of people who followed him. So, and the, the deal with a rabbi in ancient Israel was they would have a collection of students or disciples who would follow them around and watch what they were doing and hear what they said, and they'd commit it to memory so that they could be good disciples. 
and go on and do those things. So these, all of these were eyewitness accounts. The account we're reading today of Jesus in the wilderness, was there an audience? There wasn't. Just so you know. There was no audience. So where did this story come from? How did the disciples know that story? Anybody can talk at this point. You can tell me. What do you think? Holy Spirit, you're very close. Jesus himself had to have told this story to his disciples. Jesus was the only one who was there, right? Along with the tempter, the tester, we'll get to that. But Jesus himself had to tell this story to his disciples, so it must be significant. If Jesus is the one who shared it, it must have been significant to him, but also it must be significant to be included in, in the Bible, right? So, uh, Jesus comes up out of the water, Spirit descends on him like a dove, and then the Spirit does something else. What does the Spirit do? Leads him into the wilderness. The Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. Matthew 4, 1 says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. I'm going to pause one more time. I just keep pausing in the middle of these things and talking. The word that is translated tempted in that verse is actually a Greek word, um, and it's pronounced parazo. There it is. There's the Greek, super fancy, parazo. And as is often the case with Greek words, with Hebrew words, there is not a one good English word to translate it right? Because when we hear tempted, we think tempted to do evil, right? Tempted to do something bad. You are rarely, you, you rarely use the word like, hey, Charlie, I was, I was tempted to give you a present. I was tempted to encourage you today. I was just tempted to pay it forward, and so I paid for that person's coffee. Like, you don't use the word tempted that way. Tempted is generally in terms of, I was tempted to eat the entire package of Oreos, right? It's generally something you know you should not do, but the temptation is there. So in this case, it's not a great, it's not a great translation. The, the Greek word parazo is also used later on when the Pharisees are talking to Jesus and they're quizzing him on the, the law of Moses, and well, law of Moses says this, what do you think, right? And they're not tempting him to do evil, like they're not saying, change the law of Moses. They just, they are they're quizzing him. They're trying to figure out what he knows about the law. So a better translation is the word tested. A better translation is the word tested. If you think about it, a test is a situation that reveals a truth about something or someone, right? In school, you take a test to reveal the truth of how much studying you actually did, to reveal the truth of how well you paid attention in class right? So a test is about revealing the truth about something or someone. So Jesus' testing in the wilderness was the Spirit leading him into an experience that will reveal the truth about who he is, about who he is, which was just identified at his baptism, right? You are the dearly loved Son of God, and these tests are going to reveal the truth about that. So he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tested by the devil. When you think of the devil, when you think of this, do not think of this. This artist's representation of the devil. I, I do love the, just that I have to think about pure evil. What does pure evil look like? I guess it looks like this. This would be too easy. Would anybody say yes to this guy? 
If this guy walked up to you on the street and said, hey, eat the whole package of Oreos, <laughs> would you say yes? No, that is far too easy. It feels far too easy. I believe that the tester in this case was far more subtle than that. The adversary is, is very real. He's referred to as the devil. He's referred to as the tempter, the tester, the Satan. Satan is not his name. Satan is a title. It means the adversary or the enemy, and he's been around for a long time. It's a creature in rebellion against God. He hates life. It hates humans. It hates that we're created in God's image. It wants us to doubt God's goodness and love towards us and lead us on a path towards death. It is evil and mysterious, and Jesus is here to deal with it. So this figure begins to test Jesus with voices intended to plant doubts in his head. Let's look at the text. During that time, the devil came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. So let's pause right here. Jesus had been fasting for 40 days at this point. He is starving right? It's fair to say he is starving to death at this point. So the tester tries to plant doubts not only about who Jesus is, but about how the Father feels about him, right? <clears throat> He's been going through hell for 40 days out in the wilderness. He's no place for shelter, for food. Needless to say, he wasn't camping. This was not fun. And the tester begins by saying, if you are the Son of God. Because what happened at the end of chapter 3? He was identified as the dearly loved Son of God. You are my dearly loved Son. So the underlying question from the tester at this point is, if you are, first of all, if that's really who you are, maybe you should question that, but then also, if you're dearly loved by the Father, what on earth are you doing out here starving to death? Like, if God really loves you, why is this happening? This is ridiculous. He's trying to undermine Jesus' identity as the Son of God, but also his trust in the Father of if you really are loved, God would be taking better care of you than this. And since he's not, you know, take care of yourself. Now he's, now he's testing Jesus' loyalty to his Father, right? So Jesus responds, and he says, Jesus says, no, the scriptures say people don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Score one for Jesus, right? Does Jesus say, I, I've heard this explained a lot, that Jesus made this clear, we don't need bread, we just need the word of God. Is that what Jesus said? Does Jesus say we don't need bread? Do people need bread? I mean, if you're on the keto diet, let's, do people need food? Yes, right? Obviously. It would be ridiculous. Jesus wouldn't say you don't need bread at all. Jesus said you don't only need bread. Now, you can exist as a human being sustaining yourself. Food, shelter, clothes, that's all. You could exist that way, but at that point, you're not truly living as a fully flourishing human being. You're only existing, right? We're complex beings. We need more than to just survive. We need purpose. We need significance. We need a story. We need a loving community of relationships to know and be known, to love and be loved. And when we're denied those things, not only do we not flourish, we wither 
And what Jesus is saying here is that not only do you need all of those things, but what we need is a word from our Creator. A word about who we are, about what we're here for, a word that tells us the truth about ourselves and binds us together as we walk out the story of what God has called us into. So what Jesus is saying is that my life is about more than just physical sustenance, Satan. My identity and the meaning in my life is because of that word that was spoken to me by my Father, whom I trust more than my circumstances or my feelings. My identity and the meaning in my life come from the word spoken to me by my Father, whom I trust more than my circumstances or my feelings. Is that a message you think his disciples would need to know? Is that a message that we need to know? Our identity and the meaning in our lives comes from the word spoken by the Father. Amen? Okay, thanks. Thanks for being an amen, church. I appreciate that. Let's keep going. The devil then took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple. They did not go on a field trip from the wilderness, y'all. Jesus is having a vision, right? This is not, you don't, please don't picture the devil guy and Jesus walking through the streets of Jerusalem. That's not what happened. So, the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple, and said, if you are the Son of God, again, if you are the Son of God, jump off, for the scriptures say he will order his angels to protect you, and they will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Pausing again. This test is a proof test, by the way. Notice again, he starts the same way, if you are the Son of God. But then he changes tactics. Oh, it's become a scripture battle. Like he learned from the last one and went, oh, all right, we're pulling out scripture. Ha-ha. So what, do, does anybody know where, where that verse came from? If you're a Bible nerd, if you're a lover of Psalms, right? Psalm 91. If you're not familiar with Psalm 91, I highly recommend it. It's some delightful reading. Uh, it's one that actually at the start of the pandemic, um, Charlie and Kiefer and I prayed Psalm 91 for 91 days. Um, and I think it was actually something that we read on a Young Life like Facebook page or something. Um, but it was so, it, it's a beautiful psalm. It's a beautiful psalm that we can pull out in times of, of trouble. Psalm 91 is a, is a poem um, that starts, those who live in the shelter of the Most High will find refuge in the shadow of the Almighty. Um, it goes on to talk about if you put your faith and your trust in the Lord, he will rescue you and keep you from all kinds of trouble and offer protection. And it's this beautiful poem that's meant to bring the people of God to a place of prayer when they are in the middle of desperate circumstances. So it's a poem of praise and adoration meant to bring us to prayer. And the tester, the devil just twists it, right? He leads with the same qualifying clause. Well, if you're the son of God, how about you just prove it? I mean, your own scriptures, Jesus, say that God will rescue you, right? He takes this psalm that's meant to bring us to a place of prayer and a place of adoration, and he just twists it and says, hey, 
It's like a little prosperity gospel thing. You love God, he'll do cool stuff for you. So, you know, why not? You just twist it. Can you think of any other time in the Bible where maybe the tester or tempter twisted the words of God to try to get someone to doubt their status and their calling? Page three, right? Yeah, in the garden. There was a garden, and he looked the very images of the Creator in the eye and said, hey, if you do this, you'll be like God. They already were. They were ruling with God in his image. And it worked. It worked, you guys. He twisted, twisted the words of God, and it worked. They fell for it. I am happy to say it did not work in the wilderness. Jesus responded by quoting, again, Scripture, Deuteronomy 6. Jesus responded, the Scriptures also say, like just the Scripture battle, Jesus wins, right? You must not test the Lord your God. So Jesus is essentially saying, I don't have to test my Father. I know that He loves me. That is not how this relationship works. It's not just I pull God out of my pocket and make Him perform because I trust Him. I know He loves me. I don't have to test that. So if you're keeping score, Jesus 2, Satan 0. All right? So the next thing, he goes in for the final test, and it is a test all about power. Next, the devil took him to the peak of a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. I will give it all to you, he said, if you will kneel down and worship me. So this is a new tactic. This is a bold offer of power. He tried the whole if you're the son of God thing, and it didn't work twice, so he went, all right, fine. You know who you are. Let's skip over, let's fast forward all of the stuff that the Father has planned for you, and you could just take power now. You can rule now. You can have all of the kingdoms of the world now and rule the way that we've always ruled, you know, the way humanity has always been ruled, which has been working very well so far, right? No, not. It hadn't been. So, but what kind of king was Jesus supposed to be? What kind of kingdom was he bringing? What does he say? Let's look at his response. Get out of here, Satan. Jesus gets fired up at this point. He's had enough. For the scriptures say, you must worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And what did the devil do? The devil went away and angels came and took care of Jesus. Jesus put the tester in his place. He recognizes in this test something utterly evil that compromises who he is and what he came to do. He put him in his place. He recognized the lie. There was nothing in that that maybe it appealed to Jesus, the idea of just, we'll do this now, but I don't think so. I think Jesus went, absolutely not. This, This is not what the Father has for me. And this is not the only time that Jesus is faced with this exact same test and he says the exact same words. If we fast forward towards the end of Jesus' ministry, he's walking with his disciples and he asks them, like, who do people think I am? And they throw out some prophets, some names of people. And then he says, well, who do you think I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the chosen one, the Son of God. And Jesus says, good job, Peter. 
That's not the Spirit revealed that to you, but good job. And then Jesus begins to tell his disciples, I'm going to get arrested. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to die. And then I'm going to rise again on the third day. And the scriptures say Peter actually took Jesus aside like, oh, hey, you, no, don't stop saying things like that. Like, no, no, no. Like, Peter is instructing Jesus and how to do things, right? He says, don't, that's not how it's going to be. Like, that, you're the Messiah. Messiahs don't die. Like, that's not going to happen. And Jesus says the exact same thing. He doesn't address Peter. He addresses Satan and says, get out of here, Satan. Because again, Peter was, Satan was using Peter to appeal to the power aspect. Like, you can take power. That's what Messiahs do. And he said, no. So, he says, get out of here, Satan, unless Satan think that he's being sent away because Jesus was about to cave, he was about to give into that pressure. He gives this reason straight out of Scripture, and it's that the Scriptures say you worship God and God alone. And Satan goes, I recognize that I'm defeated, and he flees. This is Jesus' first victory over evil, right here. Three strikes, Satan's out. And Jesus is, now does evil show up again? Absolutely. Evil comes back, but it's been defeated over and over and over again. Jesus came to be a completely different kind of human than had ever lived. Yes, he was fully God, but he took on flesh to show us how to be the kinds of humans that God has always intended for us to be. So what were the wilderness tests about? They were about revealing the truth of Jesus' identity. His identity was firmly established in being the beloved Son of God. And why would he tell us this story? He told us this story because he knew his disciples, his followers, were going to face the same tests to forget who we are, to try to, to get us to doubt that we can trust God, to try to get us to take control and do things our own way instead of following the way of the Father. He knew that human beings have always been and will always be looking for their identity somewhere. But I will tell you, our identity is firmly established in being the beloved children of God. We are image bearers. God has called us into relationship with him to, to be his image on the earth. And he loves us. Let me remind you of the scripture that you heard during Lectio. 1 John 4, 9 through 11, God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. And this is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love one another. It's a self-giving love. Jesus emptied himself entirely to communicate that love to us. And he's asking us as his followers to do the same. To every day choose to take up our cross, to lay down our will, to give ourselves because of the love that's been given to us. We get to communicate belovedness to the people around us. Your circumstances, what you call yourself, how you identify, how you dress, how you feel, or even what the voices are trying to tell you, do not change the fact that you are beloved by God and he wants to have a relationship with you. That's the message we get to communicate. And when the voices try to tell you something different, Jesus told us what to say, and it was, 
Get out of here, Satan. Say it. Excellent. I heard get out of here, Satan. It'll, pro- it'll probably still work. So, but, you know, you want to have a little more. The voices don't define who you are. We are humans created in the image of God because he loves us and longs for a relationship with us. Jesus told us this story to show us how to gain victory over evil. And it's a message we can communicate to the world that he loves. Will you pray with me? Father, we are in awe of who you are, of the way you love us. We thank you for just the bending over backwards to communicate that to us. And we're coming to a time of worship where we're coming to your table, to the bread and the cup, where we get to retell this moment where Jesus demonstrated his love for us in his death and his resurrection. So, Father, as as your beloved children who bring you great joy, pray that that message would be sealed inside of us as we come to your table, that we would allow the story of who Jesus is and what he did to define who we are. All we can say is thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. You have been listening to the Kitsap House podcast sermon series, a Kitsap House production. We are located in Port Orchard, Washington, with in-person worship every Sunday at 1730 Southeast Mile Hill Drive inside the Raw Gym in the Town Square Mall. Services are 10 a.m. For more information, go online to kitsaphouse.org. Don't forget to subscribe and tell a friend. Thank you, and God bless.